0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and non-fiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. On July 6, 1998, the last flight took off from Kai Tak International Airport, marking the end of an era for Hong Kong aviation. For decades, international flights flew over the roofs of Kowloon Apartments for landing on Kai Tak's runway, extending out into the harbor. Kai Tak, frankly a terrible place for one of the world's busiest international airports, is a good symbol of the story of Hong Kong's aviation, as told in Hong Kong Takes Flight, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Global Hub, 1930-1998, by John D. Wong and published by Harvard University Press. Hong Kong's growth as a hub for commercial aviation was often unplanned, often the result of compromise and yet wildly successful. The city could carve a niche for itself in both the declining British Empire and the wider world, while having to deal with colonial bureaucracy, geopolitics, fierce competition, and an entirely new communist government across the border. John D. Wong is Associate Professor at the Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences and the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Hong Kong. He is also the author of Global Trade in the 19th Century, The House of Ho Kwa, and the Canton System. Today, John and I talk about Hong Kong's history with aviation from its very start with flying boats and puddle jumpers right through to the jumbo jet. So, John, thanks for coming on the show today. You know, your book has so many kind of fascinating um, historical details in it, historical nuggets about, about the airport in Hong Kong, about all these airlines, how the authorities were competing for air routes, um, how airlines talked about their flight attendants. Um, you know, there's so many great details in this book. You know, why why tackle this topic in the first place? Sure. Well,
2: thanks, Nicholas, for uh, for having me, and um, thanks for um, reading the book so carefully. Well, that's a personal reason for me to start looking um, at this topic, and that's uh, from my upbringing in Hong Kong. I went to school in the 70s and the 80s, uh, basically a stone throw away from the old Kai Tak Airport. Um, and at that time, whenever a plane flew over your head, you would have to stop your discussion, your lessons, for, for about 30 seconds or so. Uh, we talk for, basically took it for granted, but then uh, looking back at it, one could have basically clocked the economic growth of Hong Kong by tallying up the uh, number of interruptions that we endured for that, during that period. And now thinking about it more analytically, um, you know, I think it's easy for us to assume that Hong Kong was uh, destined to be an international hub. But with um, this research project, I have discovered something else. As a matter of fact, the the book argues otherwise. So rather than understanding air travel as an inevitable outcome of Hong Kong's arrival in the era of global mobility, the book argues that Hong Kong's development into a regional and global hub was not preordained, and uh, by under underscoring the shifting process that produced the hub of Hong Kong. Um, I think the book um, aims to do a little bit more than the ostensible purpose of writing about commercial aviation in Hong Kong. As a matter of fact, it's about uh, the history of Hong Kong in the post-World War II period, is a study of globalization and global networks in the making.
1: Right. And there's a and there's a lot there we'll get into. I, I do want to talk about Tech. I just, um, I'm just old enough to have Taken to have flown into Kai Tak when I was growing up in Hong Kong. Um, uh, it, it moved to Chek Lap Kok when I was um, in my in my in my early childhood, but I do still remember flying into Kai Tak Airport and coming out um, in Kowloon Side. But we'll get to that later in our interview. You know, I I want to start perhaps at the very beginning, which is uh, how commercial aviation gets its start in in Hong Kong. Um, you know, again there there's um, there really are some interesting details in your book. I remember one where uh, where Pan Am was making noise about making Macau their uh, their hub for East Asia, which is such a strange thought given where things are um, today. Uh, but I guess in the in these early days, you know, how does how does commercial aviation get its start in in Hong Kong?
2: Sure. Well, it's important. Um, the way you phrase the question is commercial aviation. We're talking about. Uh, as a technology, of course, it started more in the early years of the twentieth century, nineteen oh three, Kitty Hawk, but then as a commercial industry, it took uh, you know, a couple more decades before it, um, you know, it really uh, started going. I, and for that, we needed the technology to mature a little bit more, we needed to have um, a market for it, and we need geopolitics to mature enough, or at least to take on a certain shape for some of the discussions to happen. I guess what we usually forget is uh, that, well, yes, this is a new technology that was going to be hugely disruptive to um, global networks. But then at the same time, it grew out of existing configurations. And you see that quite clearly in Hong Kong. You have um, players um, that have long been in the logistics business. And before we talked to the guys, there was maritime um, transportation. And those entrenched interests um, would shape the development of commercial aviation in such a way so as to avoid some seismic impact to um, their, their business because of new student technology. So there's inertia in the system. And to get this new technology going in a commercial sense, it required a lot of investments. And that's investment not just in planes, but also in um, infrastructure like runways. And to finance such things, you need to have enough flows. And that's people, goods, uh, information that um, airways were supposed to um, facilitate uh, transportation of. And of course, you need to have the right geopolitical setup. And for Hong Kong, especially for this period, it, um, it was quite um, a era packed with um, events. So that, that's why the, uh, the second half of the 20th century was such a good um, uh, focus for, for the development of Hong Kong and commercial aviation. And to, to talk about this whole Macau business of Pan Am, of course, that was uh, very much a bargaining move on the part of the burgeoning American carrier. Um, What they wanted to do at that time was to meet um, the traffic coming from the European side, um, primarily the colonial routes. And um, in the case of Hong Kong, it was the British Imperial Network. Um, When Pan Am was trying to come to the side of the Pacific, and with the merging or the confluence of the traffic from um, this side of the Pacific and also from Europe um, was uh, supposed to be the meeting of uh, traffic that funneled uh, basically the, uh, the, the air routes from mainland China uh, to the rest of the world. So you, you have a confluence of different routes in Hong Kong at that moment. Um, and I think I would like to point out for this early period, we have to remember that um, many of these air routes, uh, they were not like what we um, see on our flight maps now when, uh, when we travel on, on, our, on our new planes. You have a lot of puddle jumping stops. And these planes, many of them actually flew um, the coastal route because of the landing mechanism that was in place at that time. And as technology matured, um, you run the risk of getting skipped over. And that was something that was uh, a danger for Hong Kong, along with all the other points of the connection um, during that era. And that was basically the, the development in the 1930s. And unfortunately for, for Macau, that was one of those stops that got skipped over, but they were not the only ones. Um, we rarely think about the connection in Rangoon like uh, they, they used to have in the 30s. Um, and the traffic that they expected in mainland China, um, that was something that did materialize in the 30s and the 40s. But then uh, as we get further into the book, we can talk more about developments in China and how that affected the development of Hong Kong at that time.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's great you mentioned how different flying was at that time, because um, again, I was continuously surprised by 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 some of the details that pop up about flights um, in in this book. Uh, you know, the fact that a flight from San Francisco took nine days, a flight from London took thirteen. Um, the fact that. Uh, I did I did some back of the envelope calculations and um this might might not entirely be correct, but a but a flight from London to Hong Kong would cost the equivalent of eleven thousand US dollars today. Um the 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 Pan Am Clippers that had lounges and and surface like you know and and chefs on board. This is this just seems like a very different world of flying before the war. Um, than what we're used to today with our, with our cramped seats, but, um, but also kind of transatlantic flights in a matter of hours. You know, it's like, what, I guess, what was the kind of person um, that, that, that took a flight like this?
2: Yeah, well we complain about how how cramped uh, our, our airplane seats get, um, but just reading about these early accounts of um, air travel, that just didn't seem to be all that comfortable either. I guess the way I would think about it is that it's kind of like uh, space travel now, is as uh, luxurious, as a novelty, as exotic, um, I guess not quite as much as flying to Mars now, but there was certainly a market for people who could afford it, Um, you're right on. I mean, in 1936, um, the 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 fare from Hong Kong to London would have been 175 pounds, and that's uh, three times what it would have cost the passenger uh, vis-a-vis you know steamship uh, travel. So after the war, you you have a little bit more of a mass market developing, but then even for a short flight from Hong Kong to Manila, that was 300 Hong Kong dollars one way on Cathay Pacific. And that's half a month of salary for an accountant or two months of pay for a semi-skilled um, male wage earner. So just that's just to say that it's not really for the average person. So by the end of the 1950s, we get some accounts because you have uh, travel magazines and whatnot. So so for Cathay Pacific, um, they listed comments from passengers. And these passengers included a nine-year-old American girl, an American couple, a, a Japanese business person who traveled between Hong Kong and Singapore, A Chinese resident in Singapore who flew between Bangkok and Singapore, a German traveler, an American family in Dali that flew between Hong Kong and Bangkok. I mean, for each period, you will get a different cast of characters. But then you can see that um, uh, these flights were carrying, you know, well-to-do people, business people in general, uh, from more affluent places. And um, early on, of course, you have the European travelers. And by the 50s and the 60s, you have more of the Cold War impact of um, travelers from the other side of the Pacific, primarily um, the Americans, and you know some from Germany, as well as you saw. Um, and that cast of characters continued to develop, and is mostly uh, rich male passengers with their families. Um, there would be more, you know, of the R and type of activities in the in, in the Pacific, uh, traveling through Hong Kong, uh, but is for. Quite a few decades uh, in the early part of the development, not for the average Hong Kong resident.
1: So, I mean, we, so obviously the the war happens and that leads to a lot of changes in aviation in Hong Kong status. Um, You mentioned kind of the the changes in China and how that affected the growth of the air market in Hong Kong. And I do want to talk about that. But before we get into that topic, I want to talk about Kitek. You know, for all of the for all of the romance, I guess, around that airport, and a lot of the great photographs that kind of came out of planes flying over people's homes, um, it's really not a good place for an airport. <laughs> That's why they moved it. Um, it was cramped. It was right in the middle of the city. It obviously meant that you couldn't um, develop Calvin Bay uh, because you didn't want planes crashing into skyscrapers. Uh, there were crashes all the time. Um, and it seems like, you know, according to your book, there was this effort to consider... Uh, building the airport somewhere else, but it never came to pass. I, I wonder if I talk about like you know what? Why did Hong Kong stick uh with with Kai Tak as its international airport?
2: Yeah, well, it's actually quite miraculous that nothing disastrous happened um for during the decades uh, that Kai Tak served this city. Well, um, just to get back to the moments of the Second World War, um, that was uh, that was a lot of interest in developing Hong Kong into an aviation hub. Uh, for commercial reasons, as also also for military reasons. And there was um, this rivalry between uh, the Americans and, and the British. Um, you know, these wartime allies couldn't see eye to eye on this issue uh, because at that time the U.S. was um, developing its infrastructure of airways around the world. Uh, because the emergence of the United States as the new global leader was supposed to be predicated not on territorial control, but on the access that the airways would facilitate. Now that notwithstanding, the British came back to Hong Kong in '45 um, with a lot of hope for Hong Kong. Um, and as a matter of fact, when they did the early surveys um, for Hong Kong, they called Kai Tak um, a place that could quote never be reconstructed or expanded in such a manner as to conform to modern aviation standards. They called the airport uh, incapable of anything but very minor development. So you know, I think. Uh, it's tough to argue against that for anyone who has flown into and out of kai tech is uh, quite a configuration uh, of topology uh, that didn't look totally conducive to uh, aviation um, so what they decided on was to build an airport in what's called deep bay and deep bay is straight to the south of uh, the shenzhen river so across the border from um from well, at that time republican china and that was because you have a lot of um expectations For um, aviation in Hong Kong at that time, as a matter of fact, the the, uh, situation was totally euphoric up till the early part of 1949. I mean, we know what happened um, in the later part of 1949. But for the 12-month period ending March 1949, there was a doubling of traffic through Kai Tak. And 75% of that traveled to or from China. So there was what now we know as the pent-up demand of traffic um, funneling through Hong Kong because of what's happening in China at that time. And uh, the British authorities, along with their uh, local counterparts in Hong Kong, decided to build a uh, purpose-designed airport in Deep Bay. Now, of course, we know the communist takeover of China dashed all hope um, of that happening. And that's not just because Deep Bay was not going to be so defensible because it's just straight to the south of of now uh, communist China. But there was just not enough traffic after the, the CCP took over mainland China to justify the construction of a brand new airport. So the British authorities returned to Kai Tak, and so we can think of Kai Tak as more of an expedient measure after this, you know, very uh, heroic uh, effort to try to make something out of Hong Kong in the, in, the, in the later part of the 1940s and even the early 50s. But there was just not enough traffic to justify um, uh, this new airport on Deep Bay or anywhere else. So the, the new runway that finally opened, so uh, we are actually building uh, real estate and uh, other facilities on the on the Kai Tak runway, that was new as of 1958, and at that time the, uh, the governor opened um, that new runway, and what he said at that time was uh, Robert Black. Uh, Hong Kong would not only be noted for its fine natural harbor, but also for its imaginatively planned runway. So we can see again, you know, this infrastructure was more of a continuation of the maritime transportation uh, that uh, Hong Kong was known for before commercial aviation. And that effort actually persisted into, you know, the 60s and the 70s. The runway was barely a decade old when we were planning yet again for uh, an upgrade, and this time because we needed to welcome the arrival of jumbo jets, especially the 747s. and at that time it was a different type of Hong Kong we're talking about, and I think that's the interesting part of geopolitics, uh, because the old Kai Tak was built at first on um, money from London, loaned from London. But by the late '60s, was a different type of geopolitical situation. Uh, in fact, it was an old, Hong Kong was becoming an overperforming colony in a waning empire, as epitomized by uh, the losses the colony suffered in the sterling devaluation of 1967. So what that happened was that Hong Kong ended up paying for its own runway. The colony paid for its own runway, and upgrade. And with that, it demonstrated as financial wherewithal, uh, discipline, and also some autonomy that was going to be important for the
1: development of the industry um, from the 70s on. That's a that's a great segue into one of my questions, which is, you know, you look at, you look at these debates about um, things like the runway and who's going to pay for it, things like... Um, whether or not Cathay is going to be allowed to, to fly to London. I believe that was one of the big disputes. And I'll talk about, ask about Cathay later. But it really seems like this, um, the story of commercial aviation in Hong Kong, um, for me at least, was a great entry point in, in, in learning about all of these disputes between the Hong Kong colonial government and the, and I guess the, the metropole in, in London. Um, you know, I, I guess how does, How does the fight over commercial aviation kind of connect to these broader, as you know, kind of the broader shift in, you could say, in power in influence um, in demand for autonomy between the Hong Kong colonial authorities and, and London?
2: Sure. Well, that all unfolded um, against uh, the backdrop of technological upgrade, in particular the 747s, um, so that you can uh, the planes could cover longer distances without having a stopover. Uh, that also unfolded against an environment, global environment, of uh, deregulation, um, free competition. Uh, but yes, that, that, was, that was a huge issue between London and Hong Kong in the 70s and the 80s. Um, And that goes back to the colonial governments or the uh, colonial treasuries um, footing the bill for the new runway. And with that, um, the colonial regime here earned um, more negotiating power in uh, discussing lending rights uh, because they paid for growth. Um, The colonial government felt that Hong Kong should have more control over its air traffic. So in 1974, um, Cathay Pacific, you know, was what had by that time become Hong Kong's uh, carrier, flew to Sydney. So early on, there were some flights in, in the 50s and the 60s, but then um, Cathay had to yield to uh, financially and technologically superior uh, airlines from uh, Europe and also Australia. But 74, uh, Cathay uh, resumed its flight to Sydney. And then by 1983, it was uh, even more phenomenal when uh, you have Cathay flying to North America. So that's a reciprocal um, uh, flight. Um, when, when you look at the, uh, the pattern of uh, Canadian uh, carriers coming to Hong Kong now, we have a flight going to North America, to Vancouver. And that was not a British carrier. It was a uh, British Hong Kong carrier in Cathay Pacific. And as you said, it's all the more important and remarkable because in the middle of that, um, Cathay also flew to London. That was 1980. And that's all because of this whole sense of rebalancing between the colonial outpost in Hong Kong um, versus the metropole in London. Um, And it was a way of restructuring the relationship between British officials in Hong Kong vis-a-vis their counterparts in in London. And it was was quite a phenomenal um, situation because what used to be a poor colony had by that time become quite a power to rival the metropole.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: So I have a few questions now about, about Cathay Pacific, you know, Hong Kong's uh, flagship airline. Um, and that and that has a has a... Great story too. I wonder if you might kind of tell the story of 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 Cathay Pacific and kind of how it became um, how how it became so prominent in the in the story of Hong Kong. Sure.
2: Well, that that was a story long in the making. Um, I think we know it as Hong Kong's carrier, but that's more towards the closing decades of. Um, of uh, colonial administration here in Hong Kong. Uh, It did start as um, a joint venture between two Mavericks uh, who flew in World War II, one Australian and one American. Um, But then they soon had to sell to a contingent led by Swire because the British um, returned to Hong Kong, and this whole issue of nationality of an air carrier or airline uh, became um, important um, to who could operate. But Swire was not the only one um, that was interested in aviation in Hong Kong. As a matter of fact, Jardine, their longtime rival, was also involved in uh, commercial aviation in Hong Kong in the 40s and the 50s. And Jardine partnered with uh, British Airways predecessor BOAC and formed a company called Hong Kong Airways. Um, And Cathay and this Hong Kong Airways competed uh, throughout the 1950s. The 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 deal settled between the two of them was to have Cathay be responsible for all traffic to the south of Hong Kong and Hong Kong Airways to the north of Hong Kong. But that was an untimely deal for the contingent that um, Suai and British Airways represented because 1949 happened and there was not a whole lot of traffic to and from China from that point on. And what then developed uh, as traffic to Taiwan, um, Japan, and Korea could hardly compensate for the loss of uh, traffic to and from China. So the two airlines merged in 1959. And what became of that was a long process of Cathay turning from um, this, uh, com- this merger of two competitors to more of a British Commonwealth um, identity, corporate identity, um, until it became more local Hong Kong in the 1980s. And to think about that um, in conjunction with the government in Hong Kong um, and also in London is, is a good exercise. Uh, because we tend to think of uh, the state and corporate as two distinct entities. Uh, that's not quite the case. There, were, there was a tight connection between Cathay Pacific and the colonial government. It was actually seamless at times. Um, I'll just give you an example. Uh, John brenbridge who was the chairman of Cathay Pacific from 79 to 80, uh, retired from the uh, carrier just to become the financial secretary of the British colony in 1981 and that's supposed he kept for five years so so you can see the development of this local Hong Kong British identity and that uh, became an important feature of Cathay Pacific and the subsequent development
1: So I have to talk about the chapter. Um, that discusses Cathay Pacific and their flight attendants, and I was, I was reading some of the some of the things they used in their marketing, the things they used in their in flight, either their in flight magazines or their or their staff newsletters, and it's a lot. It, it, they say things about the flight attendants that would absolutely not fly in today's world. Um, you know, very different, very different uh language used, far more stereotypical, far more sexist. Um. But but you but it's, just, I mean, it's, it's it's just kind of wild to read that stuff, um, but kind of, so you have this chapter on Cathay Pacific flight attendants and, and kind of how they are used by the airline, portrayed by the airline as part of its image. You know why why do you have this chapter on 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 air stewardesses on on the air crew? Mm. Well, that's a good question,
2: and that's, a, that's uh, certainly a very accurate uh, observation um, about the use of flight attendants in branding. Um, but then I think we need to suspend our judgment um, on some mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. uh, more sexist, sexist uh, stereotypes um, from today's standpoint and to reflect on what was going on, say, in the 60s, especially in the airline industry at that time. It was not just Cathay Pacific, but the entire mm-hmm. industry that conscripted the body of female flight attendants for branding purposes. So think about the, the way this the industry worked. It was highly regulated. You know, the number of seats each air, airline could um, have uh, that they have to sell, uh, prices they could charge. So the point of differentiation was really the customer experience, and that's largely um, in the cabin. Um, in the case of Cathay Pacific, um, of course, there are some male attend- flight attendants as well. Um, and they were not the ones who got dressed up uh, too much. As a matter of fact, they, they looked very much like um, the, uh, the pilots in the cockpit because, well, you don't need to differentiate too much. Uh, the, the, the pilots in the cockpit would have been uh, Caucasians, so primarily, actually all, all of them. And um, the the, purses, the male purses in the back of the plane, they were, they were mostly Asian, Chinese in particular. So they they used the opportunity of um, changing the or redesigning the uniform of the female flight attendants for for this branding exercise uh, so much so that you know you, in nineteen in nineteen sixties in the nineteen sixties alone there were two rounds of it. Um, it's important to say first that you know the. Um, the people they were dressing up were not just Hong Kong recruited female flight attendants. As a matter of fact, uh, when Cathay Pacific recruited their flight attendants, um, especially for that period, um, they recruited not just from the home base of Hong Kong, but their home turf of what they called the Orient. Um, And in a poster that I found uh, in the U.S. from 1971, I believe, um, they emphasized this whole issue of Oriental charm. Uh, that's a proposition they made to their uh, American uh, target audience. And what they, uh, they, the way they characterized the female attendants, uh, flight attendants, was the prettiest faces of nine exotic lands smiling at you. So you you can see this whole stereotype of pretty faces, um, exotic. Um, of course, there's a there's a politically. Um, a clever way of calling countries or cities, they just call it lands, um, in 1971. But the uniform is telling because just like any other airline um, and the hardware that they inherited from uh, the Second World War, uh, the flight attendants uh, that we had, um, including the female ones, um, remained very much um, militarily inspired in in their outfits. Um, And it was not until 1962 when uh, Cathay had one round of uh, redesigned uniforms. And in that particular round, um, they accentuated Chinese elements um, and notions of beauty. Uh, But that didn't quite sit well with more of the cosmopolitan crew that they had. So by 1969, um, they had more of this modern space age type of um, uniform that emphasized logistics. So uh, not surprising because that's also the year that uh, men landed on the moon. And by nineteen, by nineteen, by the nineteen seventies, uh, there there were more rounds of redesign. And by then, it was uh, more of a business suit because, well, Hong Kong meant business. Uh, it's more business style, and not just any brand name uh, business style, but brand name business style, uh, French uh, haute, haute couture type of uh, uh, um, branding. Um, the first design of that in the seventies was uh, none other than uh, Pierre Beaumont, uh, the same person who was spo- responsible for Singapore. Um, airlines a singapore girl outfit so there's a there's a global trend to it um Cathay was not alone and i think to a certain extent we can see a continuation of that in our
1: in our environment today um so i think i i have i have two more questions um as part of our conversation uh, so i mean we we've talked a lot about you know pre-war immediate post-war through to like 60s and 70s um how does kind of hong kong How does Hong Kong's aviation industry kind of change and develop um, as you move into the 80s and 90s, you know, especially as the handover gets closer and as China reopens to the global economy? How does that affect um, Hong Kong's aviation sector?
2: Sure. Well, China loomed large throughout this whole period, even in its absence. So I talked about the importance um, in the 30s and the 40s. Um, It was certainly muted in the 50s and the 60s and the early part of the 70s. that Hong Kong's uh, future was uh, getting determined in the 80s was important. But just as important was the reopening of China, as you rightfully noted. And it's not just because of the Chinese market that, um, you know, was uh, just so alluring for any operator. But also, it was the reopening of airspace. You could fly over China at that time. So to, to be able to work with uh, Beijing was uh, was an important um, element, not just to Cathay Pacific, but any airline uh, that would like to operate in this part of the world. And if you were to look at air traffic growth, um, you know, the, uh, the, the 60s and the 70s, there's a lot of American-led growth um, and, you know, growth of traffic that was on the right side, on, on this side of the Cold War, of the bamboo curtain as well. So uh, Japan first and then Taiwan and Southeast Asia. Uh, but by the, by the 80s, it was, you know, a, another wave of growth that was led by the reopening of uh, uh, the PRC. How did Cathay respond to it? Well, you have a carrier that needed to continue to rely on political patronage um, for them to operate in Hong Kong. And it was an important aspect of uh, the Sino-British negotiation that sealed the fate of Hong Kong in the early 80s, so much so that in the Joint Declaration, you have a special annex um, specifying the negotiation of air traffic rights. And for Cathay Pacific, as you can uh, read from one of the chapters, uh, they demonstrated a lot of delicate uh, footwork. Um, they fashioned Cathay Hong- uh, Pacific to, to be more of a Hong Kong airline. Uh, and they did it in a couple of ways. One is shareholding. So we talked about the uh, early uh, transformation to more of a British uh, Commonwealth conglomerate and then later a local um, British um, company. By the 80s, they had their IPO. So they issued shares for the public here in Hong Kong. They welcomed some local investors. Um, That was not quite sufficient, so that in the late 80s and early 90s, they welcomed red capital from uh, China. And that was uh, certainly instrumental in their continued success operating in Hong Kong and for them to earn a decent share of the Chinese market. They didn't do just that. Um, They actually uh, also recruited locally uh, pilots. Um, so commanding positions um, in in the on on the um, airplane. Uh, why is that new? Well, it's just special for Hong Kong because uh, come to think of it, you know most other Asian com- Asian cities uh, were recruiting um, their own pilots already, but they had their own pool to recruit from. You need to have people who know how to fly, and in many other places they have their own air force. So those pilots could be uh, converted into commercial pilots, but that's not a luxury Hong Kong had. So Cathay Pacific did not rely on um, such pool of talents. They recruited primarily from the British Commonwealth, uh, from America as well, uh, for, for uh, their pilots uh, operating airline, uh, aircrafts for aircraft for, for Cathay Pacific. But by the 80s, um, they, they faced the challenge of a budding and credible um local rival and that's dragon air and when that airline started to recruit not just flight attendants locally primarily uh, but also pilots as well that's when Cathay pacific started their own uh, cadet program recruiting pilots from hong kong as well so there were a lot of efforts uh, or a lot of campaigns on the part of Cathay pacific to fashion themselves into a local hong kong carrier and that was uh, in response to uh, what was happening in china and the uh, political uh, shift that was going to happen in 1997.
1: So I think for my, for my last question, I want to kind of move to the present day, or at least use the present day to, to influence um, this question. You know, there are so many debates now about whether Hong Kong uh, can, can continue as an aviation hub, you know, after COVID, after all, the, after all the disruption that caused, all the canceled flight routes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there are a lot of people are kind of asking whether Hong Kong can continue as an aviation hub. You know, I'm not going to ask you to kind of comment on, on, on the present day, but kind of now that you've kind of studied this history and studied the the growth of, of Hong Kong's aviation sector, I guess in your view, like, what does it actually mean to be, to be an aviation hub, to kind of be one of these important nodes in, in, in the global aviation sector?
2: Hmm. Well, to me, a hub is you know, nothing but um, a point of connection, a uh, point of connections of various routes. And of course, these routes keep changing and they change because of technology. Like we said, you know, about a 747, um, you can fly over longer distances. And now we have planes that can uh, take you, if you so choose, uh, for you know, 17, 18 hours uh, at least um, comfortably. And of course, you have changes in geopolitics. So the airspace that was once open and allowed us to expand into different zones like uh, the opening of China in the 70s, um, the Soviet Union as well. Um, Now we have issues of airspace like over Russia. Um, So you have this issue of uh, puddle jumping that is not as necessary. You have the issue of technology maturing. You have the issue of um, geopolitics. But now we have a new divide, and as you as you noted, is COVID. Um, with the outbreak of COVID nineteen, commercial aviation came to a grinding halt. It hurt everyone in industry, but Hong Kong in particular. Uh, why? Well, because unlike most other places, all flights to and from Hong Kong are cross-border by definition. So it really dealt a devastating blow to Hong Kong. In, 20, in the year 2020, flight movements plummeted by over 60 percent and passenger traffic by nearly 90 percent. Um, well, COVID would come to pass and the skies will reopen and certain industry players will recover and come back stronger. So the restarting of commercial aviation worldwide will usher in another round of rewiring of uh, global circuitries. And the conclusion of this pandemic could witness either the dissolution of Hong Kong's regional and global ties, or the revitalization of Hong Kong's status as a hub. Well, as we talked about um, the history of this development, Hong Kong is not simply drawn into the vortex of globalization. Rather, it was the city's effort to refashion itself into an aviation hub, um, first by remapping, by mapping itself onto an evolving aviation network, and then asserting its place within that network that really produced the hub of Hong Kong. And it was only through the persistent efforts of resourceful participants in Hong Kong and elsewhere that this could have happened. Otherwise, Hong Kong could have easily devolved into a marginal location on a global map reconfigured by new technologies and geopolitical events. Um, so COVID has been just as much of a threat, but then hopefully it will be opportunities uh, for Hong Kong as well because um, other Areas, other airports are just reopening at this time, and we'll see how Hong Kong responds to to uh, this challenge. And playing over the skies in Hong Kong, the outcome would pivot on the city's ability to demonstrate yet again its nimble posture and delicate footwork in cl- connecting global powers on the periphery. And um, I guess the next few months
1: will be crucial, and I'll be watching it very carefully. So that's a. Great place to end our conversation with John D. Wong, author of Hong Kong Takes Flight, Commercial Aviation and the Making of a Global Hub, 1930s-1998. John, I actually have two more questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
2: Sure. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for the plug. Um, people can find the book very easily on Amazon. Um, it's now widely available. For a while we had global supply chain issues, but I've noted I've noticed that the the book is now freely circulating uh, in the marketplace. So please uh, take a look, and I welcome people's feedback uh, on Hong Kong takes flight. My next project actually is still very much rooted in Hong Kong, and as a matter of fact, I'll be looking at mass home ownership in Hong Kong. Uh, which to me is a way uh, people came to be uh, rooted financially and physically in this place we call home here in the city, um, and that's interesting because not only is it uh, well, you know, I've been looking at flows, you know, and you 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 see traffic to and from, but how does one point galvanize uh, the energy and uh, make it an attractive hub where people would converge? Um, is uh, the next uh, topic of my research. And hence, I will look at it through the lens of home ownership. And I hope to report back in uh, due
1: course. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. It's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, keep listening to our podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us, continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week on the Asia View Books podcast, join us for an interview with Michael Jani and Tarun Kana, editors of Making Meritocracy, Lessons from China and India, From Antiquity to the Present. But before then, John, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Nicholas.